morning, guys. Great to be here this morning. I wasn't here last week because uh, Grace and I were at Foundation Church in Wokingham where I was speaking as a church that was started shortly before the pandemic. And um, it's really encouraging actually to see them that they've done so well because it was a very difficult time to start a new church, but God has kept them, preserved them. And uh, yeah, they're, they're, they're flourishing. They, they meet in a, in a climbing center. So it was the first time that I'd preached in, in uh, surrounded by climbing walls, which was quite fun. Uh, Owen, who leads that church, he does climb, and I think the first Sunday there he did actually climb a wall as part of a sermon illustration, but <laughs> I, I managed to resist that, that, that temptation. And uh, Grace and I won't be around for the next couple of Sundays, God, God willing, because we're due to be flying out to the States on Friday morning. Uh, I would actually ask for your prayers. Uh, Grace and I and Nancy and Felicity are coming as well. We have to do our, te- our COVID test on Thursday evening before flying out Friday morning. And with current infection rates being 1 in 13 people, I do feel a little bit apprehensive about that. So I'd really appreciate your prayers. This is a trip which has been delayed for the last two years because of COVID. And we're really keen to get out and be with Donnie Griggs and the guys at One Harbour Church for Easter. So if you could pray for us for that. It's going to be quite a busy week when we arrive. Uh, trusting we get there. Uh, so Sunday, next Sunday, I'm preaching twice. Uh, then we, from Sunday afternoon through to Wednesday, we're leading a retreat for elders and wives and staff, which is about 50 or 60 people in their context, I think. Thursday, I'm doing a day's teaching to video recording an ethics course, which will then be available online. Friday, I'm leading to uh, Good Friday services, which Nancy and Grace are also going to be involved in. I need to tell you about that, Nancy, because you don't yet know that. You're helping with the Good Friday services at One Harbor. Um, so that's, that's, what we're, that's what we're doing. So please pray for us for that. Okay. Um, well, it is a week to Palm Sunday and 12 days to Good Friday. And in those two events, we see Jesus proclaimed as king as he enters Jerusalem. And then we see him torn on the cross as he is crucified on Good Friday. And today's story is a prefiguring of that story. If you're here for the first time, what we're doing at the moment at Gateway is we're teaching through the whole of the Old Testament, started last September, planned to go through and finish in July. And uh, as, as we go through this story, what we're doing is seeing how the story of the Old Testament points to what Christ does and who he is. And the story we're going to look at today is very much a prefiguring of the story of coronation and tearing. Here's a quote which helps orientate us to where we're going. We're, we've got up to the story of the kings, got up to the story of King Solomon, and today we're going to be looking at Solomon's son, Rehoboam. This is the quote. Though Solomon turns from Yahweh, turns from the Lord, and departs from him, though Solomon and his kingdom are both torn in two by his double loyalties, yet Yahweh promises to restore David's house, ultimately through another son of David torn in two in his sacrifice on the cross, that he might join all Israel into one new person. That's the Easter story. Jesus torn on the cross in order that we might be gathered in uh, to become one, per- one people in Christ Jesus. And uh, today's story about Solomon's son Rehoboam is a prefiguring, points us to that. And uh, as we go through this story, it's not just a history lesson, but there are some real applications to contemporary issues. And one of the the, the limitations of just having a short time this morning is there's a few things I'm going to throw out, potentially somewhat, some, some slightly controversial, which we could spend hours on and we can't because of the time, but which the story does raise for us. Where we've got to so far is that we've seen 
how kings have been appointed to rule Israel. First of all, Saul, and then King David, the great model king, the great example, the king who God promises to build a house for. Then David's son Solomon becomes king. He is the most glorious king that Israel has, but he has a tragic falling away from God as at the end of his life it says his heart turned away from the Lord. He began to worship other gods. And someone has said of this that Solomon becomes a multiculturalist, a manager of diversity. Now, that's a controversial quote. Solomon becomes a multiculturalist, a manager of diversity, and that is not a good thing. That's the point of that quote. Now, in our cultural context, diversity is something of a religion. It's very high value in our cultural context. And here at Gateway, we love diversity when that reflects the multicolored, multi-ethnic kingdom of God. Last night we had our Taste of Nations event here, celebrating food and cultures from around the world. Here's some of our gateway women uh, dressed in Indian clothes, apart from Grace, who was, of course, in her Zambian finery. Uh, uh, but different ages, different states of life, different levels of melatonin in the skin, coming from different cultural backgrounds. And we love that kind of diversity. That reflects something of the kingdom of God. And it's so important to emphasize always that Gateway Church is a place which welcomes, wants to welcome everybody, regardless of background, class, sexual orientation, ethnicity, whatever it might be. But there's a diversity which... There's a diversity being promoted in our culture at the moment which actually sees doesn't celebrate that kind of diversity as much as an abandonment of truth and a promotion of a particular worldview. And that's particularly associated, connected with current views about sexuality. And we have to be so careful when we think about diversity that when we talk about diversity, we're not talking about anything going. And we're not talking about a lie taking the place of truth. What we're talking about is the glorious, multi-ethnic, multicolored kingdom of God. And what happened with Solomon as a multiculturalist, a manager of diversity, is that his multiculturalism was not enriching, it became destructive. Because he replaced the truth with a lie. He stopped worshipping the true God and started worshipping false gods. And we mustn't bow to a diversity that makes us liars. And the tragedy of the story is that it was only three centuries from Solomon at his most glorious to the whole of the people of Israel being carried in exile into Babylon. It doesn't take long for the rot to set in. And in local churches, that can happen much quicker than three centuries. In local churches, if there's an abandonment of the truth, if there's a starting to be an acceptance of lies, then the rot can quickly set in and things can quickly fall to pieces. And in this story told in First and Second Kings, the story of the kings, there are occasional points of light, occasional good king. But generally the story is one of disaster, of bad king after bad king and decay in the nation. And this starts with Solomon. Solomon's reign ends not with transition to a good king and a united nation. It's a story instead of division of tearing. This is how it goes. First Kings chapter 11 Verse 26. Jeroboam, son of Nebat, rebelled against the king. He is one of Solomon's officials. Here is an account of how he rebelled against the king. Solomon had built the terraces and had filled in the gap in the wall of the city of his 
father David. Now, Jeroboam was a man of standing, and when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem, and Ahijah the prophet of Shiloh met him on the way, wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me and worshipped foreign gods. They have not done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. Now, there's some things for us to unpick, unpack in the story. The first of all is to see that there's some tribal tensions which exist here. There long been some kind of tension between the tribe of Judah and the other tribes of the people of Israel. Uh, David came from the tribe of Judah, Solomon from the tribe of Judah. And there was this sense that the king's tribe was kind of had a preferential treatment. Does the, does the king prefer his own tribe to the other tribes of the people of Israel? Does, does the king have a favorite? So there's some of that tribal tension there. There's also a geographical divide in that the tribe of Judah occupied the southern half of Israel, while the other tribes occupied the northern half of Israel. And so there's a, a north-south divide here. And this is something which we in the UK can understand and relate to, that we have for a very long time, very profoundly, had a very significant north-south divide reflected in all kinds of ways. And it is pretty bizarre because we are, like Israel, a small country. And for those of us like me who've been born and bred in the south, even Birmingham, which is only 150 miles away, can feel like an entirely foreign land. Uh, Nancy, my daughter's at Newcastle University and got a boyfriend who's from the Midlands. And it's like, what is going on? There's this... Actually, Grace is from the north, but you'd never know it because we managed to kind of beat it out of her over the years. <laughs> Extracts it. So you think she pa passes as a southerner now, even, even though she still thinks she's a northerner, really. But there is this... It, it, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? But in such a small geographical area, the, the contrast between, between Bournemouth and Blackpool, I mean, it's like worlds apart. And it's weird because actually the distance is so short, and yet it can be so profound. It, it doesn't make sense, and yet it's real, and something that could be a real problem for us in, in the UK. And a similar kind of thing happens here. There's the, the north, the tribes, and then there's Judah in the south, and there's, the distance is nothing, but the difference is significant. It's one of those strange things that happens in human experience. But this isn't just about tribalism and geography. Solomon is going to lose control of the northern tribes because of his sin. The fault is Solomon's. He leads the people into sin. It says the people are worshipping these false gods. The reason that they worship false gods is because Solomon has begun to worship false gods. And that means that there isn't going to be a straightforward transition of the kingship from Solomon to his son Rehoboam. This is what it says, 1 Kings 11.43. Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. But it's not that simple. Next verse. Rehoboam went to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt, where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, 
Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they would always be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. It's actually a kind of a, a vulgar joke that these young men are making. It's not actually the little finger they're referring to. Your little finger is thicker than your father's waist. They are being offensive deliberately. My father laid on you a heavy yoke, Tell them, I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I'm going to scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people. For this turn of events is from the Lord to fulfill the word of the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, through Ahijah the Shilonite. When all Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, What share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's son? To your tents, Israel, look after your own house. David. The prophecy is fulfilled. The garment is torn. Now, Rehoboam's downfall begins at a place called Shechem. And there's a question we have to ask. Why does he go to Shechem to be crowned as king? Because the king lives in Jerusalem. That's where the palace is. That's where the temple is. That's where the tribe of Judah is. Why go to Shechem, which is some miles further north, to be crowned as king? And it seems, we're not told exactly, but it seems that Rehoboam is kind of digging back deeper into history of the people in order to gain some legitimacy. Abraham had gone to Shechem, Genesis 12, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham at Shechem and said, to your offspring I will give the land. And so I think that Rehoboam goes to Shechem because he's, he knows that his position is somewhat vulnerable, and so he wants to claim legitimacy from Abraham, not just from Solomon, not just from David, but even from Abraham himself. He's, he's kind of using history to gain legitimacy. And, and people do this the whole time. We See there's something of this in the current conflict in Ukraine. There's a twisting of historical narratives to justify wrong actions. And that seems to be what Rehoboam is doing. And Shechem also is in the territory of the tribes of Joseph. And Jeroboam comes from the tribe, tribes of Joseph. And so Rehoboam going to Shechem, it's, he knows that Jeroboam's there waiting in the wings. And so he goes to Shechem to be crowned king. And it's a bit like Boris Johnson going to Blackpool. <laughs> to try and claim legitimacy in the north as well as in the south. That's what Rehoboam is trying to do. And then, at first, the people give him the benefit of the doubt. They say, if you're, if you're a kind king, we'll be a good people. Just lighten things up a little. 
And the elders who advised Solomon are now advising Rehoboam. They seem to think that actually the people have a point. And they say, yep, lighten things up, Rehoboam. Serve the people. Serve them. And they will serve you. Remember the king is meant to serve. Don't overplay your hands. But Rehoboam doesn't listen to the wise advice of the elders. Instead, he listens to the foolish bravado of the young men. Now, Rehoboam, we know from later on in the story, actually was 41 when he became king. So when it says that the young men who grew up with him advised him, they can't have been young men. as we, They weren't guys in their 20s. These were young men in their 40s. These were people in early middle age, not young men as we'd normally think of it. But they were boys in their bravado and in their folly. And Rehoboam listens to their foolish advice insults the people, and rather than the people then cowering and saying, okay, we'll do what we're told, the people say, well, you're on your own, mate, and they leave. All those tribal and geographical differences which are primed and ready explode, and the tribes leave. Make Jeroboam their king. Rehoboam is left just with Judah. Rehoboam then gets heavy-handed. He sends a guy called Adoniram, who is in charge of forced labor, to try and literally whip the tribes into obedience instead they have Adoniram killed. Rehoboam then says, okay, well, we're, if you want to muscle up, we'll muscle up. And he gets the tribe of Judah ready to go and fight a war against the other tribes until a prophet, Shemaiah, says to him, don't, and withholds that folly. Now, what can we learn from all of this? One thing that we learn is that the word of the prophets is important. It's Ahijah who commissions Jeroboam and says, you'll be given ten tribes. It's a prophet, Shemaiah, who withholds Rehoboam's madness and stops him from going to war against his own people. And we need the prophetic words. Prophetic words come, they're very shaping, and we need the prophetic words to help shape us, direct us. Give us clarity about what God is calling us to. Sometimes we need others to come in and help us with that. In a few weeks' time, we're hosting this global conference in in Bournemouth. And uh, the weekend afterwards, the second weekend of May, we've got Ben and Trina Whitaker from Adelaide in Australia going to be with us for that weekend. And Ben's a bit of a wild, prophetic kind of guy. And I said, like, Ben, can please come and be with us that weekend because I feel we need some prophetic input. So I'm hoping that Ben and Trina will stir some things up amongst us because... The prophetic word is important. Something else we can see from this story is that it is a cautionary tale for a culture like ours, which is intoxicated by youth and youth culture. We live in a society which is dominated by youth culture. And and it's not a problem when teenagers act like teenagers. Well, it can be a problem. feels like a problem if you're living in the house with them. But teenagers are meant to act like teenagers. The problem is when middle-aged men are acting like teenagers. And we live in a culture which so often seems to encourage middle-aged men to act like teenagers. And that was the problem here, that these were middle-aged men who were giving Rehoboam bad advice, were full of bravado and folly and vulgarity and insulted the people and ended up with the whole thing being torn away from him. What we, what we need is elders. There were elders who advised Rehoboam, gave him good advice, which he refused to listen to. Now, in this church, there are six of us who are recognized as elders. But actually, what we should be desiring is that throughout the congregation, actually there's a sense that there are multiple elders in terms of the maturity that is amongst us. 
that there should be a maturity, not an immaturity, that there should be a, a godly eldering wisdom amongst us, not the bravado and folly of these young men, these young middle-aged men who advised Rehoboam so badly. The story doesn't end there, though. I won't read it all because it's too much, but what happens next is that Jeroboam leads the tribes in rebellion against Rehoboam, but tragically, that then involves him rebelling against God. Even though he's come to kingship because of the word of God, he himself begins to rebel against God. This is a repeating story in the story of the kings. And Jeroboam has a problem because he's taken control of the kingship. He's got 10 of the tribes, but he hasn't got the temple because the temple is in Jerusalem and Rehoboam rules in Jerusalem. And the problem is that the temple is where the people of Israel are meant to go to worship the living God. But Jeroboam doesn't want the people going to Jerusalem to worship because if they go to Jerusalem, they'll go back to Rehoboam and he'll lose the kingship. And so what he needs to do is to control how the people worship. And he who controls what is worshipped controls everything. And there are some profound things for us to think about here. Real application for us. There are, there are a, a host of kings in the world who would want to control what we worship and where we worship. Everybody worships something, somewhere, somehow. Now, when we gather, as we're doing here this morning, as the people of God to worship Jesus, that is not just a lifestyle choice. This is not just one option among others. There are all kinds of other things that you could be doing on a Sunday morning. Well done for being here this morning. I commend you for being here to worship this morning. It's great. There are all kinds of kings, though, who would say don't. Who would say go and do something else. Take your kids to play football on Sunday. Go to John Lewis on Sunday. Nice day. Get down to the beach on Sunday. To come here to worship with the people of God is it's actually a declaration of allegiance. It's, 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 it's really an act of war. That we say we are gathering with God's people to praise the living God. That's our priority. That's our commitment. Now what Jeroboam does is he knows that he who controls what is worship controls everything. And so he takes advice, just as Rehoboam had done. And the advice is clever, but again, it's the wrong advice. The advice is clear. Control what the people worship, where they worship, and you'll control them. It's always about that. 1 Kings 12, 28. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. It's too much for you to have to go all the way to Jerusalem. You can go to Bethel, you can go to Dan. Worship there. Now, in our context, what things say the same thing to us? It's too much for you to have to gather with the people of God on a Sunday to worship. So you can worship God doing that thing. You can worship God doing that thing. Do that thing, it'll be fine. What it did was lead the people into sin. Now, Jeroboam's choice of Bethel and Dan is strategic because Dan was at the far north of Israel, Bethel at the south, so it was making it easy for people. But more than that, Bethel especially is very significant because Bethel is the place where centuries before Jacob had met with God. 
Jacob had left his home and was wandering and slept at night and saw a vision, the gate of heaven, angels descending and ascending from earth to heaven, Bethel, the place where he met with God. And so when Jeroboam makes Bethel the center of worship, what he's doing really is he's saying, nothing new going on here, folks. He's like Rehoboam did. He's digging back into, he's looking for historical legitimacy. Our great ancestor Jacob worshipped here. You can worship here. You don't need to go to Jerusalem. And actually the better historical example was not Jacob, but Aaron. Remember when the people of Israel left Egypt and were in the wilderness and Moses went up to the mountain to meet with the Lord and while he's away, Aaron makes a golden calf and says to the people of Israel, here are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. Jeroboam started a bit like Moses. The people were under a heavy yoke. Jeroboam says, I'm going to give you rest. He ends up like Aaron, worshipping golden calves. Now, there are always things that can draw us away from worship, true worship of the true God. And for the people of Israel, this leads to 300 years of pain. 300 years of pain, things going from bad to worse. They'd wanted a king, they ended up with two, in two different kingdoms. The garment was torn, the nation sundered, never to be put back together again. And so there are some real warnings to us in this story. Don't replace truth with lies. Let's be alert to the lies our culture would tell us. And even when it's costly, let's stick with truth. Don't act like a teenager when it's time to act with maturity. Let's, let's, be, let's grow up into maturity in Christ. Let's have a congregation full of elders who act with wisdom from God. And don't compromise worship. Don't compromise worship. Yeah, we worship in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of places, at all kinds of times. But let's not compromise true worship of the true God. And let's keep doing this, prioritizing being together as the people of God worshiping him. The story gives us some warnings. It also gives us hope. Because as we read this story, and as we get further into the book of the Kings, it looks like the game is up. It just looks like disaster. But the plans of God are greater than the politics of man. And God has promised to build a house for his name. Back to that quote we started with. Though Solomon turns from Yahweh and departs from him. Though Solomon and his kingdom are both torn in two by his double loyalties, yet Yahweh promises to restore David's house, ultimately through another son of David, torn in two in his sacrifice on the cross, that he might join all Israel into one new person. As we approach Easter, let's remember what Christ Jesus has done for us. That when we come to Christ, we are knitted in, grafted in to his people. The garment was torn from Solomon's grasp. But in Christ, we are united together in him. Jesus is gathering all his people, all Israel, from every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. And so we can, this Easter and every day, celebrate the diversity of the kingdom of God that God is gathering people from every background, every kind of personality, every social demographic, every skin color, every language group. God is gathering to know him and be united together in him. And we can hope that in Christ we can grow up into real maturity, that we don't have to be spiritual teenagers, but we can grow in maturity, knowing Christ and reflecting him. And we come to worship the true God with true worship 
as his true people being built into his true spiritual house. That's the gospel message. That's the message of Easter. That's the message of hope, which we love to proclaim and celebrate. Let's pray. Would you stand with me as I pray, and then we'll come back into worship. Jesus, I pray for us, Lord, in our crazy, so complex world, that you would help us to see truth and hold on to it. I pray, King Jesus, that we really will grow up into maturity in you. I pray that there be a maturity in this church which enables us to withstand all the temptations and buffetings of the world in which you've placed us. And Lord, would we keep running together into worship of you. Lord, thank you for the great joy and privilege of being your people, your saints, your house, of being able to proclaim the greatness, the love, the goodness, the mercy, the grace, the kindness of our God. I pray, Lord, that we keep doing that, that we'd be those who... Yeah, don't find ourselves having divided loyalties, but come wholeheartedly to you, full of joy, confidence, wonder at your love for us. You have knitted us in to one new man, one new people, the people of God. We thank you, Jesus. Amen. Let's worship him.